0: Hello, friends! Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an astrophysicist, planetary scientist, author, and a science communicator. The universe is filled with mystery. Science has answered a lot, and yet there's still so many fundamental questions which we seem no closer to understanding. What is consciousness? Are we alone in the universe? And why do people argue so much on the internet? Expect to learn what would happen if the moon disappeared, how Neil has dealt with the fallout from Patrick Bet-David's podcast, why Sir Christopher Wren was an architect troll, Neil's best answer to the Fermi paradox, why the world of astropolitics will be very complicated, why your colon bacteria doesn't think very highly of you, and much more. You might be listening, but not subscribed. 70% of you are listening, but not subscribed, in fact. And it really does make a difference. If you want to support the show, just press the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. There's a plus in the top right-hand corner or the follow button on Spotify. Thank you very much. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money thousand companies have already made the move. So do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash modern right now. That's netsuite.com slash modern. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Neil deGrasse Tyson. We were discussing your overly Baroque column background behind you before we got started. I've got a story about Sir Christopher Wren famous English architect. During his extremely long career as England's most celebrated architect, Sir Christopher Wren was often told by his patrons to make impractical changes in his designs. Never once did he argue or offend. He had other ways of proving his point. In 1688, Wren designed a magnificent town hall for the city of Westminster. The mayor, however, was not satisfied. In fact, he was nervous. He told Wren that he was afraid the second floor was not secure and that it could all come crashing down on his office on the first floor. He demanded that Wren add two stone columns for extra support. Wren, the consummate engineer, knew that these columns would t- t- serve no purpose and that the mayor's fears were baseless. But build them, he did. The mayor was grateful. It was only years later that workmen on a scaffold saw that the columns stopped just short of the ceiling. They were dummies. Both <laughs> <laughs> both of them got what they wanted. The mayor got his columns, and Wren actually didn't have to molest his uh, original design.
1: Well, I think it uh, wasn't one of the big reasons he was catapulted to significance was that he was um, an active and celebrated architect at the time of the London fire
0: I don't know but that would have correct? been around about the right time 1680s yeah, and I yeah. think
1: so. and, and you got to rebuild stuff right afterwards and I, I so I had some memory that he, he was around when when people needed architects
0: <laughs> so I asked a good friend uh, historian about which British person from history did he wish had more exposure in the modern world, and he said Dick Whittington. Why do I know that name? So Dick Whittington, the real character that was Dick Whittington, ended up being this rich guy. It was cats. Dick Whittington and his cat was the story that you might have heard. Um, But he ended up giving away almost all of his money, the still buildings that are alive today and educational grants and all sorts of stuff that are downstream from this one guy and his cats. Oh, okay, Cool.
1: Yeah, I've heard the name. I didn't remember why I know the name. Some but, British history for you there. Uh, yeah.
0: you've got a quote that says it's not good enough to be right. You also have to be effective. What does that mean?
1: Yeah, uh, that comes to me from my father, among a couple of other sort of wise uh, epithets. Uh, that one, you know, if you if you want to change the world in some progressive, positive way then you can go out and just scream at people. You can tell them they're all wrong or they're idiots or you could just say whatever. But if you didn't invest any time and energy, thinking about how to be effective with your messaging, you might as well just stay home. It's not good enough to be right. You have to be effective and that's where the effort and energy and, and, and navigation, of people's ways of thinking uh, how to unravel habits that are deeply held if those habits interfere with achieving some goal so uh, i've never forgotten that and at every turn where i think you know the world could be better off if it was a little more scientifically literate so that we can become better shepherds of this awesome technology and uh, that we wield and people who take it for granted, people who, who reject it, people, uh, there's a lot of sort of misunderstanding of it all. And so again, you can't just declare it and then go home. You've got to sort of fight the good fight and it's not always a fight. It's just, it, is there another way I can say this where you'll now understand what I'm trying to tell you because previously you didn't, and is it your fault or is it my fault? that you didn't understand me. I could just declare it to be your fault. And then once again, I'm ineffective. (laughs) So so uh, I tweeted once and it turned out to be way more controversial than I think it should have been. The tweet was, uh, how often have we heard a teacher say, these students just don't want to learn? When really that teacher should be saying, maybe I suck at my job. And that's coming from the same place of if you want to, you can't just be right. Yeah, maybe they don't want to learn. Is it their fault or yours? You're the teacher. Why don't you make it interesting for them? Yeah, that takes extra work. You got to know what's going on, what makes their brain ticks, what what receptors exist within them or not. Figure that out. Navigate that. Yeah, then you'll be. That's then you become a great teacher. We all have great teachers in our lives, all of us, and it's not every one of the teachers we've had. Most of them are not that, are not effective, and they're not influential and are not memorable. I've had teachers say, "How can I become a better teacher? Be the teacher that you remembered having, that one in a hundred teacher. Be that teacher, and yeah, maybe you'll be
0: effective." Is it particularly ironic that a tweet that you are uh, uh, having this particular idea about trying to be not just right, but also effective, resulted in a tweet about not being just right, but also effective, which was then interpreted in a way which wasn't effective?
1: <laughs> well, that's why I'm saying. It had, it had a little more noise that followed it than I had intended. I thought people say yeah, I never thought about it that way. But no, have you ever taught? Sometimes people just got all, well, it is, it is the cesspool that is social media. I get that. Uh, but I try to always know what the reactions, the range of reactions will be. Otherwise, I'm I'm miscommunicating at some level.
0: Speaking of that, you recently had a conversation with Patrick Bet-David, and there is a clip from that that's done the rounds a little bit on the internet. I don't know how much attention you pay to what's going on. What's your post-mortem on that situation if you had one?
1: Um, well, when I'm asked to be on a, on, you know, on a podcast, I, I, it, it usually means people are interested in what I have to say about the world. And so I'm flattered uh, and I try to be effective. I try to be um, uh, potent for an audience. And not all audiences are, are the same. The mixtures are very different. And so I try to be aware of that to the extent that I can in the time available. Uh, I was on a four city tour of Florida at the time, uh, this, I give a public talk in, in theaters. I was in Orlando and Jacksonville and, and Fort Lauderdale and, uh, between two of those cities, cause I was driving between among those cities between two of them is his studio and they they mapped this out they knew this <laughs> there's no way i could say no I said, well, you know you are driving by here at this time uh between these two cities i i said well sure sure and um he's a big fun you know socially uh aggressive but not not in a an angry way but just in a sort of curious way so uh, i was i was Just fine. But then he, he pivoted and made the whole big part of the conversation about vaccines. And I was intrigued by that because I'm an astrophysicist and, but to the extent that I can shed light on people's confusions by alerting them of what science is and how and why it works that I can do, um, and speak of the denial that many people are in on many frontiers of science that are moving along and it's curious i'm intrigued by why that happens how people might cherry pick certain information but you know what's behind it mostly i think is that and i wrote about this in 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 recently uh, in a whole chapter called risk and reward where we are whoa we as a species and there's plenty of evidence for this are woefully uh ill-equipped to think statistically or probabilistically about the world. We're just awful at it at every turn. And I don't know in the UK, but in the United States, the subject of probability and statistics is not a fundamental feature of the math curriculum. And in when you get to high school, you're age 16, 17, 18, it might be an elective in some high schools but it's otherwise not there. And so, and I joked, (laughs) my one conspiracy theory that I, are we all allowed one conspiracy theory? I have one, okay? Uh, The state lottery thrives on people betting they're gonna win with odds that are, dare I say, astronomical against them winning. And you know who doesn't play the lottery? typically, are people who deeply understand probability and statistics. They just don't. All right? And the, well, if they don't, then the state doesn't raise money. And for most, many states, if not most, the tax revenue from the lottery goes to fund education. So it's in their interest to not put Probability and statistics in the schools.
0: Okay, you think that the part of the U.S. justification behind the scenes, this sweaty cabal of ho- hooded figures, um, are purposefully keeping young kids statistically illiterate so that they can continue to make money from the state lottery?
1: That, If you grant me that one conspiracy theory. Yeah,
0: that's hard. I will permit you to have that one. It's relatively harmless. So the you may have missed this. Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister of the UK, said that children are going to have to learn maths until the age of 18 now, as opposed to the age of 16.
1: Nice. And throw in, make those extra years count.
0: And
1: they'll be way more valuable to learn probability and statistics than calculus, I would say, or even advanced trigonometry, in terms of just what's relevant to your brain wiring and decision making that that you have to go through. Uh by the way the uh in another story that I tell the American Physical Society which is the, the United States uh, organization of, of professional physicists uh and academic and and industrial physicists the American Physical Society they were scheduled to have their annual meeting in San Diego and there was a snafu with the hotels and they had to quickly readjust and re reorganize and Las Vegas, the MGM Marina, now the MGM MGM Grand, rose up and said, we'll take you. We can house 4,000 physicists, however many multiple thousands of physicists, like on a dime. So they did. So all the physicists went to Las Vegas. And a week later, there was a news headline that said, physicists in town, lowest casino take ever. (laughs) They've been invited to never come back ever uh, been uninvited for any future uh, visits. Uh, the point is it's not that they somehow knew the odds and and exploited them. It's that they knew that betting is not really what you should be doing with your, your money statistically and probabilistically. As a physicist, uh, I'm an astrophysicist, but the same line of training, I've had some form of probability and statistics every year of my life since 10th grade through graduate school, some form. And, and so it's just, it's not natural to think so. Point is the reason why I'm going here to tell you that is we embrace passionate testimony above data in almost everything. It's why advertisers will show you this product worked for me, right? Rather than just show a bar chart, they could just show a bar chart and say how many it worked for, how many it didn't, and how well, just show that that would be all the data you need to decide. But no, that doesn't work. You have to see another human being passionately tell you that they use the product and it works for them. And that's a feature of the fact that we don't think statistically and, and advertisers know this. And as I've implied, an entire industry exists because of that weakness and its casinos.
0: Well, in your books as well, you don't just write a list of compelling stats, right? You hang those stats around narratives. There's protagonists, there's stories, there's people, stuff happens, you get bought in. Like, we're just not that compelled. Some people are. For the most part, humans aren't that compelled just by stats.
1: Yeah. Yes, and and I accept that. However, the, the narratives that I weave them into They may be examples of the statistics that are a little more real, a little more emotional, uh, but I'm not required. I'm not, I'm not trying to have you believe something that it is, that is not statistically true because I went to the exception to that statistic and had that person testify in front of you. So you heard that somebody died after they took a vaccine. Okay, do uh, you know how many people die every second, who, with or without vaccine, <laughs> just there's a death rate of people in the world. And if everyone is getting vaccinated, somebody's going to die shortly after they get vaccinated. Just the statistics of that. But that's not what rises up. What rises up is my uncle, cousin, whatever died, and I heard about some. There's a website, and then all of a sudden, the these cases become much more real to people than the statistics of what it is they're trying to evaluate. And so, and I, I get it, we're human, and, and, but all I can do is, is offer the truth, the objectively established truth, that is, truths established by the methods and tools of science, uh, repeated as best as possible at any given moment where we know something. That's science is exquisitely tuned to establish what is objectively true, but better than any other thing I've ever seen, any other system of inquiry. When you think about it, it's why planes don't fall out of the sky. It's why, you know, we can send a space probe to collide with a moonlit of an asteroid and time its difference in its orbit. It's how we can park a telescope a million miles from earth and observe the early universe with it. It's how and why that works. What do you think we do? It's why your smartphone works. How you can find the shortest route to grandma's house in this afternoon's traffic. Not a human being is involved in that decision. It's all technology and science and math. So uh, maybe just science needs better PR. That's all.
0: Why do you think it is that that conversation generates such uh virulent response, so uh, so passionate? And this is from both sides of the fence. This is from people that are both pro and anti whatever the strategy is that's been deployed in your country. Have you considered what it is that's caused people to have that level of uh, vehementness? Um.
1: Yeah, I don't see it as pro and con. I see it as people who are objectively sharing truths about the world and those who reject it. So it's not just, are you pro or are you con? Are you with me or are you against me? That, that would be true in politics, right? There's always political divisiveness. If it's purely political, sure, I expect that. And in a good, healthy democracy, that gets debated daily. Uh, if not, then it should be. So, for example, you don't debate whether or not humans are warming the earth. this is an established objective truth. what you do is you so that if you, if you spend time debating that you're you're wasting taxpayers' uh, trust. what you should do is say, well I'm conservative and you're liberal, and uh, my solution is no you you don't tax uh, solar panels or you do where you, 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 you invest in the, in the industry. Do you uh, put tariffs for an overseas solar panel to build our, those have fascinating um, political solutions that can land anywhere on the spectrum, depending on how passionately people argue them, how well they defend them and the like. And so I welcome political conversations to solve problems in a free democracy. But I will not equate those equations, Those sorry, I will not equate those conversations with conversations where you're sharing with someone the statistics of, of public health and then you have people just choosing to reject them for whatever reasons they have.
0: I think a lot of those people who are... Um hesitant around the vaccine would be saying I have seen other statistics and your contention would be those statistics are wrong they're not framed in the right way I don't think that for the most part it's right to characterize the people who are reticent around that stuff as rejecting stats they've just been convinced by a different set of statistics
1: okay that's the charitable way to put it I would say that um there we have agencies whose sole purpose is to establish public health um, uh, guidance. And if you look carefully, if you unpack what it is they do, it's hundreds, and in some cases, thousands of health professionals who are weighing in on what should be the next steps in the interest of the health and safety and security of society. If you now choose a different source uh, I'm intrigued by that because you don't choose a different source when people, if how about the people who say uh, earth is flat, are you just going to say, yeah, I think earth is flat because they've convinced me. Are you going to say, no, a plane can't fly. So I'm not going to fly. Planes are dangerous because I saw one crash 10 years ago. So, so I'm going to walk or I'm going to take a car. By the way, in the United States, 40,000 people died in car accidents, pedestrians and drivers and passengers in this past year. That's a, that's a higher than in recent decades. So, uh, the way we choose our risks that we would absorb or not is itself fascinating to me, but it shows that people first are, so yes, if you want it, you're choosing statistics that are not mainstream, I'll just put it that way. If it's not mainstream, we, we have this curious urge to embrace the claims of someone who says you've always thought this was true but it's not this is true
0: there's something they want you to believe this
1: but this is what's actually true
0: there's definitely something alluring about like gated information why
1: that's so compelling to people
0: i i think everyone's
1: always done it this way and they're wrong And and then you listen in They say, wow, tell me, tell me the right way. Oh my gosh, they've all been wrong. Uh, At no time, for those who are attracted by that kind of scenario, are they saying to themselves, is there a reason why everyone else has done it this way that is not being shared with me? That, That question doesn't typically get asked. So, you know, I can't run around and keep, I mean, there's a limit to this that I can do. And so... You know.
0: Is there a a concern there as well? You mentioned before I'm an astrophysicist, and I'm being asked questions to do with stuff that is outside of my domain of competence. Is that something that we should be more concerned about? About people kind of getting out over their skis in other domains? You know, we have experts, people that happen to be an expert in one domain, getting asked about the Ukraine conflict, or getting asked about what we should do about global warming, and you think you. You you don't have an expertise in this. You just happen to be good in one area of life, and now people seem to think because you're good in one area that we should, everything that you say and everything else, it, would it be a better world if people said, actually, I don't know, or actually, I don't have a take on that?
1: That's not realistic, But uh, and I think your question con- conflates two different points. So one of them is people have opinions on things, sure. People have opinions on Ukraine, and on Russia and on, on global policy. Yes, we elect officials to represent how we think our country should be run. That's not a matter of, you can only comment unless you are an expert in international policy. If you're, if you are an expert, your comments might be more convincing because you've thought about it more deeply. But the whole point of a democracy is on issues where opinions matter, the majority rules within some framework of a constitution and morality and the like. So that's different, that's different from someone claiming they're an expert in something that does not have to do with opinions and they're not. So in in my case, I do not accept invitations to be on shows where the main point is for me to comment on a subject outside of my expertise. If they say, we need you on a global warming show, get a climate scientist. We need you on a vax show, get a a medical professional. I decline those interviews. You would never know it because in larger interviews that I'm on, when the interviewer pivots to other topics, such as we have kind of done here, um, that typically gets excerpted for YouTube. And it looks like I'm commenting on all of these things all the time. Um, So it really just reflects people's, uh, interest and, and I respect that. The difference is I'm sharing with you mainstream, uh, content. It's mainstream in all t- cases. All right. So it is the emergent consensus of professionals that I have read and I've understand, I might be able to explain it in another way than others couldn't cause I'd spent a lot of time in that space. Um, But that's what I'm doing. So for people to say, uh, you're wrong about the vaccines, I'm gonna debate you, it's not about me. It's about what medical professionals are sharing that I am sharing with you, okay? It's got nothing to do with me. Now, if uh, the difference would be if you said, um, which vaccine do you advise or how do you, no, I would never do such a thing, okay? Do you you devise against taking a vaccine? All I can tell you are these numbers that I get from the CDC and other medical professionals and other public health professionals. That's what I get, and that's what I'm sharing with you. But the fact that people come to me to want to attack me for saying that, I'm intrigued by this because they think I somehow have some, some separately researched agenda about the topic. That is not the case. And so, but it's true for all of it, all of it. Now, I have stronger opinions where it involves people who are sure they're abducted by UFOs. I I can have that conversation because that's closer to my expertise. And I can offer opinions about that that may be of interest to you. And they are deeply informed opinions.
0: Why do you think some people- So otherwise- I want to know why you think some people believe that they've been abducted by UFOs. What do you think's going on there?
1: I, I- i my point is not whether or not they've been abducted but their eyewitness testimony in the court of science is insufficient to uh convince an authentic skeptic on it we just need better data than your eyewitness testimony i know in the court of law i need a witness you know in the court of science that is the last thing anyone will say. <laughs> i need a witness no i need a chart recorder i need the 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 the, the you know Uh, I need some other evidence that wasn't processed by your brain, and we know this, so that's why. I just need better evidence, and what has been put forth doesn't satisfy that. So if you've been abducted, here's what, next time you're abducted, just snatch something off the shelf, an ashtray or whatever, I don't know, do alien smoke, I don't know, (laughs) snatch, you know, some device, and bring, and, and you have something and take that to the that'd be cool oh yeah then we can have that conversation but until then i i don't have it it's it it doesn't convince me enough to to pursue it so i don't stop people from doing it you want to bag yourself an alien with a net go right ahead i will not stop you and you'll be the most famous person ever in the world if you capture one and by the way the the janitor that works at area 51 all the janitor has to do is take a snapshot of the aliens stockpile there. That janitor will lose its job overnight, and it'll be the most famous, richest janitor there ever was. You could live stream it. Okay? We have methods for that today. So...
0: You spoke about uh, risk and reward as two of the things. In your new book, you also talk about life and death. And given that the universe is at least part of your domain of competence, is it more terrifying or liberating to realize that the universe is pretty much indifferent to us as individuals life on planet earth what we do our motivations and the way that our lives continue forward
1: yeah it depends on the individual because that's an emotional reaction to an objective fact so it is true the universe could care less what's happening to you in spite of all of our urges to the contrary going far back even pre-religion okay religion kind of codifies that you mean something to the universe and the gods that matter to it but even before then there was or, or or there was or the sky knows about about you right this is the the seeds of astrology it's right i'm born at this time and and mars and venus and the sun they know about me and they and they and they have information about my life this urge that the universe as vast as it is somehow knows who you are and how you're living who you're going to sleep with and what your chances of earning money will be uh, these are early signs of that need it's a need and it takes a lot of sort of brain uh I don't know what you call it, uh, adjustments to recognize that it is we alone who can or will save us from ourselves here on earth and all the challenges and problems that we face. That is enlightening. Uh, To some it's terrifying, but I'd say, no, it's, it restores control over our fate to ourselves. So now we have to become better shepherds of who and what we are. And of the world that we that sustains us, in order to have any hope of the future that we uh, wish for, for civilization on Earth.
0: Do you think that we are the only corner of the universe that's got consciousness in it?
1: So, as best as I have, as best as I can judge, um, consciousness remains poorly understood as a thing. And how do I know that? Because every year, somebody writes a book on it. The more books that are actively written on a subject, the more evidence that is that we don't understand it. (laughs) Otherwise, you wouldn't have to keep writing books on it. It would be done. All right? Ask yourself, how many books are there on Newtonian gravity? There's like two books, and they're on the shelf, and they've been there for 200 years. All right? And so the people aren't still writing about this subject. So that tells me... We have way farther to go before we have any deep understanding of consciousness. We're not not in a good place to judge what other animals also have consciousness. All right. the the religious arguments would say we're the only one, and then other arguments would say, well, quote, the higher animals, which is itself a bias towards who and what we are relative to other animals, you know, are bacteria conscious? Well, they're really in control of your body in your digestive tract. There are more bacteria that live and work within one centimeter of your lower colon than the total number of humans who have ever been born. So however high up you wanna think of yourself, to the bacteria, you are a darkened vessel of fecal matter, of anaerobic fecal matter. And if you upset them, they're in charge of your life. Because you tell you they'll you will know exactly where the toilet is and how many paces away if you upset them. So they'll be say, the higher animals. I'm not even I'm not engaging that level of ranking. I will say it'll be hard to not imagine that other animals or, or other mammals are also have a consciousness. Certainly your cat, your dog. No one will deny them this. Horses with people who ride horses. Um... All the animals for which we have somebody who claims to be a whisperer to them, <laughs> the horse whisperer, the cat whisperer, the dog whisperer, the rabbit whisperer, whatever. I would think those animals would have what we think of as consciousness. And so consciousness is not rare on Earth. Earth is not rare. Earth has a, the fact that we're on a planet, around a star, um, in a Goldilocks zone where the temperature is just right. The planet catalogs are growing exponentially. Uh, 27 years ago, we knew of no exoplanets, um, planets orbiting other stars. Now, the catalog is rising through 5,000. And so these are places we might look for life. And we've only just begun that search. So, no, I'm not saying we're the only corner of the galaxy with consciousness. There, there's no reason to think that. And there's every reason to think the opposite, especially given that we're made of the most common ingredients in the universe hydrogen carbon oxygen nitrogen the most abundant ingredients in the universe and light happened to be opportunistic taking what it was given and turning it into life when it had a source of heat a heat energy such as what we got from the sun so no where we're looking
0: i learned only a couple of weeks ago that proxima centauri and the exoplanet that seems to be in that system is similar sort of size to earth similar sort of distance from a star which is putting out similar sorts of amounts of energy and it seems to be rocky as well like how ridiculously unlikely is it that within the the closest other system to us happens to have a planet that looks good in terms of uh, options for habitability.
1: Well, there's a there's a branch of probability called Bayesian statistics where you you take a prior, and you say, so you don't calculate the statistics from scratch. You say I already have some information. Does shouldn't that allow me to do the statistics standing in a different place than assuming nothing? And so the Bayesian statistics is of the hundreds of billions of stars in the galaxy, if the nearest star system has a planet just like Earth, probably Earth-like planets are common, if the nearest one has it. Uh, yeah, right? so That's you're folding in
0: the likelihood of us now being two for two in terms of us going out.
1: Yeah, yes. Or if we find life on Mars, not on the surface unlikely, but beneath the surface where there's, we still think there's water present that was once on the surface and became a kind of permafrost. Mars is very cold and inhospitable in many places on its surface, but there might be forms of life where it's actually rather hospitable, right? I mean, you would die pretty quickly on the North Pole, um, but polar bears just hang out there, right? So (laughs) that they doing the backstroke. Okay. And they're mammals, by the way. So, so what we think of as hospitable could be different among life forms on earth, especially from different life forms from planet to planet point is if in the nearest star system, we find a planet that looks like earth is Rocky like earth is in the Goldilocks zone like earth. It allows you to think that Earth like planets may be much more common than we had ever imagined. And if we find life in our backyard, then we're, we, we're again saying, starting there, we say, oh my gosh, it's our backyard, the nearest plant, planets to us, the moons of Jupiter, it's right there. Oh my gosh. That it allows you to think maybe life is even more common than the most generous estimates we've ever given.
0: That would be terrifying. Are you familiar, I'm going to guess that you will be, with the Great Filter hypothesis?
1: Wait, what would be terrifying?
0: If we found microbe organisms on the surface of Mars or underneath the surface of Mars. Why is that terrifying? It's just nature. Because of the Great Filter, which is my sort of most recent obsession from Robin Hanson. So he says, why is it that we can't see all of the aliens? One of the potentials that gets put forward is there is a particular line in the sand that civilizations tend to not get past. If you take that that might be one of the reasons that we haven't seen any other what seem to be intelligent life forms out there in the universe, if we find life that is near to us, that is behind our level of development, what that suggests is that this great filter still lies ahead, which means that we are yet to get past it.
1: Sure. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. That started uh, a few decades ago when it was suggested. There are variants on this, this great filter, uh, but it's ve- it invokes um, fundamental but still very human philosophies on the existence of such a filter. So it would be well. This is a variant on it, but I think it's it's a it's a little more uh, present. So it's uh, you want to go colonize planets. Okay? So you go out and do that. Well, I want to do that too. Well, I can't colonize your planet because you, you. so i got to find a different planet. So if you breed a civilization that is into colonizing planets and taking ownership of them, then everyone goes out to colonize planets. There will be a point where there aren't enough planets to be colonized. And now people wanna colonize each other's planets, creating a level of conflict, a kind of implosion of this exploration paradigm. And that, that implosion basically dismantles the entire exercise of what it is to colonize planets. And that is a planetary, a direct planetary analog to European colonization of the world up to and including the second world war. All right. Uh, There is England, uh, British empire. The sun never sets on the British empire. By the way, that sentence is identically equivalent to the sun never rises on the British empire. (laughs) If it never sets, it also never rises. Okay. Just let's be logically consistent about that. But, um, there's England, there's Portugal, there's Spain, there's France and, and the Netherlands and, and, everybody's and then at some point y'all ended up fighting each other yes you're fighting each other for control of new york that the dutch and the and the british and the French, and everybody's fighting and and it's all gone practically now okay and because there's nothing left to fight over there's no major colonization efforts such as what occurred in the in in the 1600s 1700s and 1800s so it's that it's that analog extended to space and that's an interesting analog what it says is the urge to explore in this way is incompatible with being successful expressing your urge to explore and and another line that could be joined you can think of many of these that the technologies are so awesome and so powerful that the civilization implodes within it. They destroy their environment. They, they blow themselves up. They This is a big concern, of course, during the Cold War and persists as a concern in the modern landscape of geopolitics. So it could be that a, t- a civilization becomes so advanced, it has the power to render itself extinct. And that could be another great divide. Okay? So uh, yeah, we can come up with all kinds of reasons there. Uh, I don't know if it's obvious to people that this question was first posed by um Enrico Fermi, it was called the Fermi paradox. It's not just where are they? All right? There's more thought that went into it than just where are they? It's because we know how old the universe is. And we know how long it would take to colonize a galaxy. So, let's assume you don't have warp drives. But you do manage to go, let's say, 10% the speed of light. All right? Is that too much to ask? <laughs> 10%. <laughs> like give us 10% the speed of light. All right? So if you can do that, uh, uh, the Alpha Century system is four light years away. So 10% of that, there would take you 40 years to get there. All right. Now, it's a one-way trip as the European... Um, explorers and colonists came to the New World, those were one-way trips for them. Alright, so that we understand a one-way trip. So they go there and then they pitch tent and then they develop space exploration and they move on to another planet. But they move on to two planets instead of just one. And they colonize and they go to four. And then they go to eight. And then sixteen. And it's fifty years in between each one. If you add up the time and at the rate at which this spreads, and this is what Enrico Fermi did is we call a back of the envelope calculation. Just something you do while you're sitting there. It doesn't involve a computer. You realize that you can completely populate all planets in the galaxy in just a few million years, a few million years, 10 million years tops. Earth has been around for four and a half billion, billion years. Ten million is a small fraction of four and a half billion. So if there were other planets that were formed before Earth was, a billion years before Earth, two billion years, three billion years, we formed seven, eight billion years after the universe formed. All kinds of stuff could have been happening in the universe before we got here. So the question, where are they, is legitimate in the sense that anyone who was going to colonize would have colonized at all. That leads to the interesting question: Maybe, maybe we are a colonial outpost and don't know it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it's fun. It's great food for science fiction storytelling. But I don't. I don't see anything terrifying about it. I don't. You can't invest emotion in cosmic discovery. You can invest emotion in wow, I'm learning something new today. Not oh my gosh, what does this mean? Am I no? Just just celebrate it.
0: Do you think that we're going to have problems when it comes to astropolitics from Earth? Yes, yes,
1: yes. Let, let's start with the, 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 the Outer Space Treaty, okay? What's it's that? a much longer title, and I always forget the full title. The Treaty on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space Among—it's <laughs> a big title— Right, it came out of the UN back in 1967, something like that. If you re- and that was a very turbulent time. We were in a hot war. The United States was in a hot war in Vietnam and a cold war with the Soviet Union and NATO, and and we had a civil rights movement, campus unrest. There was a turbulent time. And so if you read it, it's it's very kumbaya. It's like in space. If it'll only be peace in space and. If you're in trouble and you're in another country, I will help you in space. And it, you read it, it's like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so UN, okay? United Nations is everything you'd want the United Nations to be and represent. And and I, I was taken by it initially until I just got older. And I got, I don't know, if, it's not so much cynical. I just became a realist. And I said, really? Really, what you're saying is... If everybody goes into space, then we'll stop killing one another. But on earth, you can't stop them from killing one another, but somehow space is going to be different. So my, my interpretation is show me, you can stop killing each other on earth. Then I'll believe you can make this work in space and you haven't shown that to me yet, so I'm skeptical.
0: One of the things that I realized when there was a a passing asteroid that there was a potential project to go and maybe try and chip a little bit off, bring it back to Earth, it was going to have, I don't know what it was, lithium or gold or something. It was going to have some valuable repository. If you did that, it would completely wreck the market for that on Earth because the entire economic system, the way that the Earth works, it's a closed system, right? We know how much difficulty there is in associated with doing this particular thing and it's within a, a set amount that the earth has it's a restricted supply kind of like bitcoin i suppose
1: yeah but it, it's uh it wouldn't wreck it it would change it yes okay i mean you, you value judging and saying that would be bad no
0: I, cause I havoc say, is what I meant. No,
1: let's, just, let's talk about the consequences of it uh nature has a way of pre-sifting ingredients on the periodic table of elements so that when it makes new planets uh, it's hot and molten and the heavy things fall to the middle and the light things float to the top. When we think of rocks, we think of them as heavy, but earth's crust is made of rock. The rock is the lightest thing on earth. And that's why it floated to the top. What's our core made out of it's made out of iron and nickel and, you know, cadmium and, uh, all these heavy metals went to the center of the earth. There's some veins that got trapped while then we now call them ores that got trapped while the earth was cooling. And so they're gold ores and, you know, yes, if that weren't the case, we wouldn't, we would have no access to any of those. Well, in a protoplanet that started doing this, slam it with another protoplanet. And these pieces break off. You have entire asteroids made of rock. Those are from the outer shells of these protoplanets and entire asteroids made of heavy ingredients, such as metals. And those are asteroids made from the middle, there are fewer of those, but they're out there and we know where they are. And they have the greatest concentration of metals and rare earth elements and all these things that are otherwise rare or hard to get to on earth. There they are, right there. Yes, if you lassoed one of these asteroids and brought it back to earth, the marketplace in every one of the metals in that would be completely transformed. And yeah, gold would be, you know, it's a $10 an ounce or something. It would be really cheap or less. There are asteroids with more gold on it than has ever been mined in the his mined or extracted in the history of the world on a single asteroid. So gold, by the way, is highly technologically useful, highly. It's the most malleable substance. So you can take a little bit and flatten it out and make sheets. You can do, and so people's inventiveness which previously was constrained because of how expensive it was. If gold is $10 an ounce instead of $800 an ounce, you could think of other things to do with it, opening up whole new marketplaces. Just think about that. Look how cheap computers are. Yeah. You got to drop a thousand dollars, but for what that thing does, oh my gosh, you would need a city blocks worth of computers. 40 years, 50 years ago to do that. And now it's sitting on your hip. When the price of computing dropped, we found more and more things to do with it. Did people worry about the collapse of the computer industry? No, they found other things to do undreamt of by that earlier generation. Among them is let's build a computer that fits in your shirt pocket that talks to orbiting satellites put up there by the U S military to find coordinates on earth so that you can get the quickest distance to grandma's house in this afternoon's traffic. Oh my gosh. Did anyone imagine that? No, it's another application for something that is cheap, cheap. It's so cheap. You can't even charge for it practically. I, I'm I'm old enough, just to sound like father time here, um, when there's one computer on the campus, on the university campus, and you had an account, and you would you would write your software, and you'd run it through the computer, and you get the results, they would charge you. You'd get a bill for it running, and it would be like, oh my gosh, I need a grant to pay for the bill to run my computer on this one mainframe in the center of campus. Uh, so... Yeah, don't try to keep your emotion out of the consequences of things. They are just what they are. I don't don't want to tell you what to do with your emotions, but keep in mind that often the emotions are because things will change from what you're accustomed to, but that's not always
0: bad. Speaking of things that might be bad, I read a book called Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, and the first line of that book, The Moon Explodes, how much havoc would be caused on Earth if the Moon went away? If I could just snap my fingers and the Moon left?
1: Well, astrophysicists would delight in this because the Moon wreaks havoc on the trans on the on the visibility of dim objects in the night sky, especially the phase of the Moon as it's closest to full moon. Uh, you know, the full moon is like six times brighter than the half moon. The the, the laws of optics make the full moon much brighter than just the simple geometry of two halves. So it's a fascinating fact. So that completely, so we have what's called dark time and and light time, and, and, and if you wanna see something really deep in the universe, you have to apply for the coveted dark time when the moon is not up. So we would be happy, first of all. Second, uh, the tides would drop in intensity to about a third of what they are, and we would just have solar tides instead of lunar tides and uh, What else would we have? Um, the uh, You wouldn't have a, the, the, Evenings wouldn't be as romantic <laughs> <The moon. laughs> Okay, uh, Islam would not have this symbol the crescent moon and a star in the sky uh, the lunar calendar would have never have been invented or to be orphaned in place once you snap the moon out of existence. So people would have to switch over probably to the Gregorian calendar, which is not moon-based. It's based on Earth's seasons. Does the, moon, and,
0: does the moon not do something, stabilize the rotation of the Earth as well? So,
1: yes. So Oh, you're talking about historically. So the moon um, has – so Earth's uh, – the tip of Earth – thanks for mentioning that. I almost forgot. The tip of Earth's – we're tipped on our axis.
0: 23 more, degrees?
1: 23 and a half, somewhere around there. Close enough. And, um, that, and we process on our axis, like a top, whoever spins tops anymore. I don't know. You spin it and, and the top starts to wobble while it's spinning. It's wobbling. We're wobbling in space. So that's, that's precession. Okay. That period is 26,000 years. All right. So we've seen this in, in recorded history. Um, and we've measured it. Another thing it does, it bobs up and down. So. While it's processing while we are spinning and the bobbing up and down is a change in the angle of our tip relative to the Sun and The gravity of the moon has a way of stabilizing that because that would tip much more um, Wildly than it currently does. I forgot the numbers right now just several degrees each way, but without the moon it would be much larger than that and that would make for much more severe seasonal um, temperature changes. And yeah, so civilization would have developed differently from how it has in under that influence.
0: I remember I read an article from someone who was trying to do an astrophysics analysis of why the seasons in Game of Thrones. Could be so difficult. Yeah, I remember to predict.
1: that. Yeah, the winter's coming. Winter's coming. They say that for three years. Winter's coming. <laughs> so you can ask. In fact, on one of my podcasts, uh, I I think we addressed this. I, I interviewed uh, George R. R. Martin for one of on my Star Talk podcast. But I don't think that was the podcast where we talked about what planet this could be. So what you do is you you back you you you, you back into the story, right? So you say, all right, how long does uh how long does it take to get to winter? How long how many months or years is there not winter? And then you you configure a a planet, moon, star system that is on an orbit. There are other consequences because if the orbit is, gets close and far, then the size of the star in the sky has to get bigger and smaller. I don't remember them referencing the size of their sun. So yeah, it's it's fun. Uh what we call not so much revisionist, but um it's the the whole field of apologetics where you have something that is taken to be true, and you do whatever you can to justify how and why that's the case. It's apologetics from the original is it Latin, meaning defender of their their religious apologetics, for example, who defend their version of the Bible against people who say it's not true. so it's it's a fun exercise in the sci-fi world. They do that for, for Star Wars, um, uh, Han Solo said he, he did the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs boasting about the speed of his ship. And that's just wrong, okay? What does he you mean? Can't, you, you can't give a time measure with a, with a measure of length. A parsec is a measure of length. All right, 12 parsecs is about 40 light years. And no, that's like saying, oh, uh, how, t- how tall are you? Um, (laughs) uh, uh, how tall are you? I am, uh, um, what's an example? Uh, uh, how tall are you? I am 55 miles per hour. Okay. This is (laughs) okay. How long did it take you to go? 12 parsec. This is not how this works. The units matter. Okay. Um, what's your body temperature? Oh, it's it's forty three cents, you know. No, it's not.
0: Right. It's so not whoever was in cents. the writing room at Lucasfilms so that day,
1: there were people who took a sentence and worked hard to find a way to make that rather than say, yeah, he he, he fucked up. Rather than say that, uh, not he, but the writers, right? They they came up with some backdoor way to account for it, and it's like, okay, that's how you want to do it. I'll walk away now
0: (laughs) Have you read about this Habitable habitable Worlds Observatory Which has been proposed
1: Uh, There's something called the WASP Collaboration Which is a wide area uh, S Wide area search for planets Which is ground based It's got dozens of countries participating Sharing their data And they're finding planets Um, I think they're targeting Earth-like planets. Uh, I don't know if that's the same thing, but I it don't
0: has know. The so I, I read an article about it. In sessions of the recent 241st meeting of the American Astronomical Society, NASA officials outlined their approach to developing what the agency now calls the Habitable Worlds Observatory, a 6.5 meter space telescope operating at ultraviolet, visible. Oh no, in-
1: it's a whole other thing. Oh, oh my gosh. Yes. Oh, that would have just happened.
0: Literally because this the, week. American yeah. Astronomical Society.
1: That's, those are my people, and we—I wasn't there for that meeting otherwise i could give you firsthand a, a retelling of this rather than the the journalist's account but uh, we just we meet um, our biggest meeting is once a year in january uh, oh that's great i'm glad to hear that sure. uh,
0: what is it the budget projection uh, for its the it's 2035 to 2040 and 45 and you would need to increase NASA's astrophysics budget currently about 1.5 billion a year to 2.5 billion annually later in the 2020. You don't have enough money. And if you don't get enough money, it's going to take ages. And people were mad that it was going to take ages, basically.
1: Well, uh, first, we are forward thinkers in my field. The James Webb Space Telescope was on paper in proposals decades ago for what it would be and what it would do. And You spec it as best you can at the time, but technology changes and and we learn things in science. Certain things may be impossible. Some things are easier than we thought. So you can make adjustments along the way. But uh, the James Webb was on paper decades ago, as was the Hubble telescope, on paper decades before it was launched. And so, um, so, yeah, we are very forward thinkers. And the way you do it is you increment the budget and that money goes to it. You don't spend it all at once because you don't have it and you you couldn't spend it because often it involves technology developments. So, yeah, I mean, Search for Planets is a big industry now, as you'd expect, because we're looking for life.
0: That must be infuriating to do a project which is going to take so long that you know that the technology that you are going to design it with (laughs) will be way obsolete by the time that it comes to launch it.
1: Yeah, so you do your best to forward project that based on how quickly things went obsolete before. So with Hubble, because it was a serviceable telescope, they were able to swap out the was it Microsoft uh
0: XP <laughs> or some of the
1: early operating systems. And the chip was a two hundred eighty six chip, you know, it was uh once you know plus Hubble was delayed in its launch because of the Challenger disaster. And that delay meant it was sitting there in mothballs, not literally mothballs, but it was sitting there getting old as technology and computing advanced and bandwidths and communication protocols and the like. So when it launched, it was already old. In the first servicing mission, which had to fix the optical problem, they were able to swap out a whole bunch of things and bring it up to date so yeah, so yeah no- it's, it's a it's a challenge the The one rule in astronomical research or any scientific research is you want the experiment to be done before you die
0: <laughs> okay, right, So the person that's designing it might put a mortal limit on what's going to go on,
1: and the budget appropriately, correct, that's right. I like that mortal limit. I like that that's what we would call it. <laughs> What are the mortality factors of this project, right? Well, Louie's going to die, and, and Susie's going to die, and yeah, so you give them other projects that can happen within their lifetime.
0: Quicker, right. Okay, you can go and get us a coffee or something that would be <laughs> capable. What are you working on next? What can people expect from you this year?:
1: Oh my gosh. yeah, I'm, uh, I have <laughs> I have a book, the third book of my uh, in the spirit of my podcast coming out, Star Talk. Uh, it's a third book. And it's called "To Infinity and Beyond." Well, it's, it's not coming out until like December, so no, I don't need to distract people with it. But it's a, it's a celebration of cosmic discovery, but through the through the, the Star Talkian lens, which is pop culture and humor, and but you learn the fits and starts of science and how we went from A to B to C to beyond the alphabet where there are no letters to ascribe. Uh, off to infinity. So it's, it's a, it's a close up look at how we make discoveries and how we celebrate them and how we lament the ones that fail. So it's a candid look at how science works. That's cool. That's, and... that's, that's in the fall. So, but we're still editing that and that's, that's still happening. Otherwise I just want to go to the Bahamas cause I had a very, uh, very full year, uh, with the publication of, of of the book and oh by the way we were talking about uh, the moon if the moon weren't there there's a whole chapter on just called earth and moon and just if you want to sit down and bask in what the moon is to us and i'm glad we have a moon because I'll, I'll repeat the off-quoted um uh, what do you call it it's not an epithet the off-quoted um saying in the spa- in the space faring industry that if god wanted us to explore space he would have given us a moon. It sounds a little backwards, but yeah, we have a moon and we've explored space. If Think about it. If we didn't have a moon to draw us as a, as a destination, would we have had a space problem? I mean I, I I wonder this.
0: That's a really interesting question because the barrier to entry for space travel would be so high if the closest thing that we were going to was Mars.
1: Correct. Correct. We still correct. haven't done it. Venus is closer, but we'd learned before then, I'd hope, that we would vaporize upon learning. So yes, Mars, for sure.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that is very interesting. Uh and Starry Messenger also relatively new out now. People can go and get Yeah,
1: it. yeah. In fact it's uh in the United States it's at least for this last I checked, it's still on the bestseller list, but it will surely get bumped because it was hanging on at the bottom. It'll get bumped by your your boy,
0: um, Prince Prince Harry. Spare Prince. well. I mean, if you if if you want to compete with Prince Harry, you're going to have to spend half a chapter talking about your penis. Neil. Oh, is I'm, that right? Okay, it's a, a, a step. I don't know whether you've descended into that realm yet with your writing, no, but
1: I, no, I I I I. I You know, the people were joking where he says he wants to go into private life and not be disturbed. Um, But to make sure that happens, he goes on Oprah and then goes on (laughs) 60 Minutes and then publishes a book. And then and now he can have his peace and quiet. Right. So anyway, I'll make room. I have no hesitation making room for ex-royalty. That's how the the book lists work. But I, I was delighted to be on the bestsellers at all with a science book. I mean, it's it's not often that that happens. So.
0: Congratulations uh, no, mate. I'm happy for you.
1: But the United States had some following.
0: Yeah. Well, look, Neil, I appreciate you. I appreciate your time and uh I'll see you next time. Thank you. Excellent. Thanks
1: for having me.